Uh, We are in Acts chapter 6, if you have a Bible. I've been preaching through the book of Acts. Now in Acts chapter 6, we're going to be reading this morning uh, verses 1 through 7. And just to remind you, the, the, the book of Acts was written by Luke. And this book of Acts tells us how the gospel, the message of Christ, spread after Christ went back up uh, to heaven. So the book of Acts really starts with the 12 apostles whom Jesus had trained, and, and they're now going out to tell people what, what Jesus had said and what Jesus had done, living and dying on the cross for the sin of the world. At this point in the book, the apostles are still in the, in, uh, the city of Jerusalem. That's where all really the, the early Christians are still at this time. They will begin to spread out here very shortly. Uh, still in Jerusalem, though, here at this time in Acts chapter 6. Let's go ahead and and pray, uh, and then we'll read. So, Father, we do thank you. Uh, We just look to you, Father, now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns with you, Father, a living, a living Christ. And, Father, we don't want to come this morning and just connect with information. We don't want our minds just to be filled with, with words. We, we don't just want to see words on a screen. Father, we come today to engage with the living God, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in and through the person of the Holy Spirit. And you're the only one who can do that. And so we would just open ourselves up to you, Holy Spirit, and ask now that you would do a work in our hearts, you do a work in our minds. That wherever, we have, wherever we've come from, if we've walked into this room uh, slumbering or, 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 or lazy or, or passive or, or, or just coming because it's something we do, Father, I just ask that you'd stir our hearts this morning. Lord God, we just plead with you that you would stir our hearts Father, that you would give us faith to believe that in this room right now is the living Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit. And Father, whatever we need, wherever our hearts are today, we can connect with the living Christ in the Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord. Do this work in our hearts now as we look to your word. And we thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve, the twelve apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer." And to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicolaus, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles. And they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Amen. You know, back in the Roman Empire days, when the Romans pretty much ruled the earth, 
the Romans had a way of maintaining rule <laughs> over the people uh, in the Roman Empire. A, a Latin phrase, divi de et impera, divide and conquer, or divide and rule. When, when, when a body of people within the Roman Empire was beginning to get, to get too big, too, too strong. They, they, they had some, some power, could maybe challenge the Romans' authority over the empire. Well, divide and rule. The Romans would simply divide that group of people. Either force the group of people to divide, or uh, more subtly, they would often just cause divisions in that group of people. Cause rivalries and, and factions. Cause infighting in that group of people. Somehow break up that large concentration of power into much smaller, weaker concentrations of power and thereby maintain their rule over those people. Divide and rule. And, and please hear me when I say this, that this strategy is one that Satan knows well. It is one that Satan has used for hundreds of years against Christians. Satan knows that, that when God's people, when Christ's followers, when they are unified, when, when the church around the globe is unified, or, or when just one local church like this is unified, or when just one life group in the church is unified, or just one Christian family is, is unified, Christians living and working as one, well, Satan knows that group is powerful, and he will do anything and everything he can to divide that group, to weaken it, and thereby maintain some rule over God's people. Abe Lincoln, in his speech during Civil War days in our country, he actually quoted from Jesus himself, and Lincoln said, a house divided against itself cannot stand. A country divided against itself in in a civil war against itself it is a weak country it can be ruled by outsiders and christians divided in a civil war against themselves they are also weak and they can be ruled by an outsider and satan knows it and at this point in the book of acts satan now attempts to divide and rule. The, the early church in Acts, the, this group of, of Christians in Jerusalem, this group of Christians has been growing, man, very, very quickly. At the start of the book, there's 120 disciples, Christ followers. And now at this point in the book, there are probably over 20,000 Christians in the city of Jerusalem, spread out all over the place. And man, this growing body of believers up to this point in time has been a unified body. Luke, on several occasions up to this point, he has said things like this in Acts 4.32. He has said, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. There has been this loving unity among the believers there in, in Jerusalem. And this unity has made them extremely powerful in the book of Acts. A threat to Satan's kingdom. And now all of a sudden here in Acts 6, we see a little division in the church. 
a crack in the foundation of unity in, in the church. A, a very subtle attempt, I believe, by Satan, the powers of darkness, to divide and rule these early Christians. We see three things in this passage that three points we'll cover today. One, we see first here in this passage, the lack of unity. Two, we see the restoration of unity. And three, we see the power of unity here. And the first thing we see here, point number one, is is this lack of unity. If you look at verse number one again, now in these days, Luke writes here, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. You just stop and think about that verse right there. We, we see a couple realities there in the early church side by side. On the one hand, they're growing, Luke says. They are increasing in number very, very quickly. A massive church growth right now. And you think, man, that would be fantastic to grow from 120 to 20,000 disciples. Not so fast. Uh, because rapid growth like that can also cause problems, and it does here. And right after Luke talks about the growth here, he then says in the very next breath that a complaint now arose. One group in the church now neglected. A problem caused, I believe, by this growth. This this church is just quickly outgrown its its care structure. It's just exploding here. And the the 12 apostles all by themselves, there's no way they can care for all of these people. And there's now a group of people that's neglected. It is a growth problem. If if you have kids, then man, at, at some point, your kid will come into your room in the middle of the night and wake you up and say something like, my leg hurts. Well, (laughs) did you do something to your leg? No. Bang it? No. (laughs) Stub your toe when you kicked your brother? No. No. Well, then it's a growing pain. Your body's growing, and things that grow quickly sometimes experience pain. Here's some Tylenol. Hope you sleep well, because I will never now get back to sleep. Thank you very much. And man, this church, this is now a growing pain in this church. Grown so quickly, they're now experiencing a growth problem here. Some widows in the church being neglected. And you can read right over that, oh, big deal. No, that was a big deal in this first century Israel. Widows in this day, women who'd lost their husbands, especially those, those women who had no grown kids to support them, well, they were in a very, very dangerous situation. Uh, the, the husbands in Jewish society, they were the primary breadwinners. And a wife who lost her husband with no kids to help support her had a very hard time surviving. Widows back in this day, they were typically very, very poor, almost always dependent upon the community for help. And, and one of the problems in first century Israel was that a lot of Jews had this superstition that if you lost 
lost your husband, you were cursed by God. And so they would not actually help you. And many widows in Jerusalem here have now become Christians. And they've joined this church. Very, very needy Christians. And please listen to me. God wants every Christian church to care for their own needy believers. You know, God, God, God wants us as, as a Christian church to, to just care for the needy, period. Wherever they are, all, all around us, whether they're Christian or not. But God especially wants us to care for the needy Christians within our own ranks. Whether they're widows or orphans or whether they're elderly or they just lost a job or they just lost a car, lost lost a home, whatever it is. And, and listen, God, God wants us to care for, for the needy because God cares for the needy. God cares. A heart of compassion for the needy people in this world. We can see it all through the Bible, God's compassion for the needy of this world. God just constantly saying in the Bible things like this here in Deuteronomy 10, 17. This is just one instance where you can see God's care for the needy. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. We, we, we see that type of language just all over the Bible. God just loves. God, God, God cares for this, this heart of pity, this heart of compassion for, for the needy in this world. People like sojourners or foreigners, immigrants, and, and the fatherless, orphans, and widows. And listen, God also wants us, as an expression of His heart, He wants us to also care well for the, for the needy. The needy all around us, like, like God does, but especially the needy in our own ranks. And man, please hear me. Do you know what can help you to care a little bit better for the needy around you in this life? You know what can help you to care for the needy? Well, you first just have to see yourself as needy. And you are needy as a human being. A sinner, the Bible says. Someone who has rebelled against God. And because of your sin, you are separated from God. Deserving the eternal wrath of God, the Bible says. You are spiritually poor. You are bankrupt in this life. You're heading toward an eternal hell. And you cannot get yourself out of that predicament, no matter what you do. So I don't care who you are. I don't care how much money you have. I don't care what class of society you are in. You are infinitely needy. And thankfully, God cares for the needy. Jesus Christ died for the needy. For needy sinners like, like you. Paid the full penalty 
for your sin on, on, on the cross. And man, you, you, now be, you now turn to Christ in faith and you begin to follow Christ as your Savior and your Master and God forgives you of all your sin. God has just met your eternal needs. And man, I'm telling you what, as a Christian then, God just keeps meeting your needs every single day of your life. Every single physical and spiritual need you might have, he meets those needs for his people. Now, he might not meet those needs the way you want him to meet those needs, but he knows what you need. He knows even before you ask, and he meets all of your needs as as a Christian. And listen, the more you see yourself as a truly needy person in this life, the, the more your heart is opened up to receive God's compassion for you as a needy person, well, the more compassion you now have for the needy around you. Compassion in equals compassion out. And we begin to care, care for the needy around us. And God wants us to. But man, the problem here now in this Christian church in, in Jerusalem is that because of this rapid growth, some of the needy widows are being neglected, Luke says, in the daily distribution. You know, most early churches, most early Christian churches like this, had an official system for caring for their widows. Paul talks about it in 1 Timothy. Most churches had a, a system that those who were truly widows and, and part of the Christian church, they lived a godly life, they had nobody to support them, they would be enrolled on an official list. And the church would then provide for them, uh, give them daily food, <laughs> the uh, meals on wheels or something coming to these widows, provide clothing for them or, or meet other urgent needs that they had, this official system. But, but some widows here were now being neglected in this daily distribution. Now, now listen, this, this neglect here, I do not believe this was a deliberate neglect. We just don't like you widows, so we're not going to care for you. No, the Greek word for neglect here, it indicates an unintentional oversight. Some widows just, just overlooked with all this new growth. Some widows now falling through the cracks in this church, not being cared for. But please hear me on this. There was another layer to this problem. There was another factor here that could have destroyed this church. Because this overlooking of these widows in the church, well, it was happening along ethnic racial lines. An ethnic tension in this church now. If you look carefully what Luke says in verse 1, he says it was the Hellenists now in this big church body who raised a complaint against the Hebrews because the Hellenist widows were being neglected. And notice, they didn't just raise a complaint because their widows were being neglected. No, they raised a complaint against the Hebrews, against another body of Christians within the church. There's a little bit of something going on here. 
Here's a little background to it. In, in first century Israel at this time, the Hellenists, they were Jews with a Greek background. Most of them born and raised outside of Israel. Their, their Jewish parents or their, their grandparents had moved out of Israel at some point. Part of the Jewish dis- diaspora that had been spread outside of, of Israel. And they moved into all these other countries, these Jews, other countries with a Greek language and, and, and a Greek culture. And, and these Jews then raised their offspring there. The kids in these countries, still Jews, but raised in a Greek school, Greek uh, uh, language, Greek culture, Greek food, <laughs> eating at Nof uh, Nof Grill every day. Uh, these, these, these Jews, uh, these Hellenist Jews in, in other Countries, Greek Jews, who eventually moved back to Israel. And many Hellenists had now become Christians. They had now joined this growing body of believers in, in Jerusalem. So that's a Hellenist. The, the Hebrews in first century Israel, well, they were native Jews. They had been born and raised in Israel. They, 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 they went to Hebrew schools. They spoke Hebrew or, or Aramaic, the language of the day. Hebrew, Hebrew culture, Hebrew, Hebrew food. And many Hebrew Jews had also become Christians and joined this church here in Jerusalem. And, and listen, there were probably a lot more Hebrews in this church than Hellenists. Commentators say that out of all the Jews in Jerusalem at this time, maybe 90% of them were Hebrews. And only 10% were Hellenists. And if those numbers translate into this 20-something thousand person church here, then there were maybe 18,000 Hebrew Christians and only 2,000 Hellenist Christians, and here's the thing, these Greek Hellenists in Israel, well, they were really kind of like foreigners. Most of them had moved in from other countries, different language, different culture. They were what we would call immigrants, a minority people group within this church would be like 20% of our our church, 10% of of our church, a little section of the church had just moved over here from India. And they were immigrants, these these Hellenists. And they had a social stigma that immigrants often feel. They didn't quite fit in with the native population, the, the Hebrews. They did probably feel that a little shame was heaped on them at times by the Hebrews. A little dishonor heaped on them at times as the minority group. And here's the thing that's important for us as a Christian church. God wants every Christian church to care really well for the needy. Which includes foreigners, immigrants, 
Because immigrants, once again, just like widows, they are often very needy. You just picture somebody immigrating in directly from India, from, from, from Mexico, speaks no English, doesn't understand the culture, how things work, can't even get on a bus, no, no job. They are needy. And God cares for the needy of this world, whether they're elderly or they're widows or they're orphans or they're immigrants. God cares for them. Here's a part of that verse we read earlier, Deuteronomy 10, 18. God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and God loves the sojourner, the foreigner, the the immigrant, giving him food and clothing. God just loves. He cares for the needy like foreign immigrants, and God wants us as a local church to care for the needy too. So, so please listen here. God wants us as Christians, as a local church, to care deeply for those who would be considered foreigners, immigrants, in our country or, or in our church. Now sure, we, 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 want, uh, we want good immigration laws for the safety of our country, but do not let immigration laws make you a bigot in your self-righteousness. God wants us to care for foreigners. You know how you learn to care for foreigners? You see yourself as a foreigner. Separated from God because of your sin. And yet God didn't leave you separated from Him. He pursued you in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved you. He poured His grace upon you. A foreigner. And He brought you in. And He embraced you. And He called you family. And that should be our posture towards foreigners, towards immigrants. There's no place in the body of Christ for racism. None. And can I tell you that racism does exist in the body of Christ? When I was in seminary, I shipped out to all these different churches on different Sundays all over uh, uh, um, Mississippi, Louisiana, Alabama. I would preach at these different churches. I went this one Sunday. Man, the sticks in Mississippi, tiny little church. They were looking for a pastor. And when I got to this church building, I was met at the back door by an elderly white man. And as soon as I walked up, he walked up to me and said, if you became a pastor of this church, are you the kind of pastor that would let non-whites in this church? And I was appalled. I was shocked. And it is one of the only times where from the back door to the pulpit, I changed the sermon. And I preached on racism. And I left and never came back. It is appalling to God, the racism that exists within Christian hearts. And it's there. I've had Christians pull me off to the side in the corner of the room and begin to whisper to me about how these different foreigners do certain things. It is not acceptable in the eyes of God. God cares deeply for needy immigrants, and God wants us to care for them too. Like these Hellenists in this local church here. But in this church now, it was the Hellenist widows. The the, the immigrant widows, minority widows, now neglected, overlooked. Now again, I do not at all think this was intentional. It makes sense that it would have happened. Most of the 12 apostles, they were Hebrews. They'd been born and raised in in Israel. And 90% of the church, they were Hebrews. 
A lot of these majority Hebrews, well, they had known each other from birth. Same kindergarten, played on soccer teams together, been in each other's homes. And with this church now exploding in size, in all this chaos, it would have been very easy for the Hebrew majority to simply miss some of the Hellenistic minority. But man, please, please hear this and catch, I think, the emotion here in that verse. This was a potentially explosive situation probably produced some legitimate ethnic tension. It probably felt to these Hellenists like racism. An ethnic hostility. These these majority Hebrews are mistreating us, keeping all the funds for their widows. And in the body of Christ, there should be no ethnic hostility, period. No ethnic divisions, Period. Because one of the reasons why Jesus came to this earth wasn't just to forgive you for your sin, but also to remove that hostility between people groups. Galatians 3.27 says this, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. Praise God. And now, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, there there will always be some distinctions between ethnicities, different languages, culture, things that are maybe hard to get around at times. Those distinctions are beautiful in God's eyes. Christ didn't come to remove those God-given distinctions between ethnicities, but Christ did come to remove the hostility. There should be no racism in the body of Christ between Africans, Americans, Caucasians, Mexicans, Indians, and on and on. When it comes to the blood-bought body of Christ, there is no longer Jew nor Greek. There is no longer African-American over here, Caucasian over here. There is no longer Hebrew and Hellenist. We are all one in Christ. But man, it probably felt... A little like racism, what was going on here. The Hebrews felt like they were mistreating the Hellenists. It felt to the Hellenists, I'm sure, like a bit of an ethnic hostility. It wasn't. probably felt like it. And I think you can tell it felt like it by the way the Hellenists responded. Because the Hellenists here now protest, Luke says. They, They raised a complaint, not just about the widows, but about the Hebrews. And listen, this complaint, (laughs) it wasn't just some polite official little complaint. The Hellenists, you know, send their one representative over to the apostles and he files this official complaint. Dear sirs, it, it, it wasn't like that. The Greek word for complaint there could be translated as murmured, muttered, a discontented, behind the scenes whispering. The Hellenists have simply started, started to, to murmur. Behind closed doors, among themselves, in the corners, murmuring about the Hebrews and the neglect of their widows. And 
please hear this. Luke's trying to tell us something there. Because that Greek word for complaint, which could also be translated as murmur, that is the same word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament describing what the Jews did in the wilderness. They murmured against God. They they murmured against Moses. They they murmured about their food, about, about their drink. They murmured about being in the desert. And then that murmuring in the wilderness, it divided the people of God, and many of the people died because of it. And Luke now goes back to that passage, pulls that word out, and says there was a murmuring now among the Hellenists because of what was happening to their widows. There's division, ethnic tension. It was potentially explosive here. You know this, but churches today have split over far less than that. Man, there, there was actually, I was looking at, uh, online at church splits uh, the, the, this week. There was actually a church a while ago in Dallas that split. The two groups now both filed lawsuits to get the church property. And during the, the court hearing, the court learned that the conflict had started at a church dinner when a certain elder received a smaller slice of ham than the kid next to him. And it blew up into a full-blown church split, reported sadly in the Dallas papers. And man, this was far more dangerous. Not ham. This was race, was a big part of what was going on here in Acts chapter 6. This could have split the church in two. And you know what you would have had? You would have had what we have a lot today. You would have then had the first church, the first Jerusalem Hebrew church on this corner, and the first Jerusalem Hellenist church on this corner, and they never would have talked to each other. And both of them would have been much weaker for it. And this division was ultimately sparked, I'm sure, by, by Satan himself. You know, it's so easy to read over this. You, or you, you look at a situation like this. You, you, hear and you, you, you hear about this church split or something, and, and, and all you see are the people. He said, she said, and things like that. But Ephesians 6 says that our battle as Christians, it's, it's not ultimately against flesh and blood. But it is ultimately against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The ultimate cause, I'm sure, behind this division in this early church here in Acts. And why would Satan cause this division? Divide and rule. Divide and rule. Split this large concentration of power up into smaller concentrations of power, much weaker, and he could maintain some semblance of rule over the people of God. That is one of Satan's primary tactics against God's church. Divide and rule. Because a divided house cannot stand. So first thing here, the lack of unity. The second thing, point two, the restoration of unity. Man, these apostles, <laughs> once they hear about what's going on in, inside this church, man, they move to fix it quickly. If you look at verse two, and the twelve apostles summoned the full number of the disciples. It may not have been the full 
20,000 or so disciples in Jerusalem at this time. The Greek word can be translated as just a large number or multitude of disciples. But this is still a really big church meeting <laughs> right here. Uh, they, they might actually have met there in Jerusalem um, in a big yellow gym, kind of like we do <laughs> for our church meeting. Jimmy John's in the back for this big church meeting here in Acts. And the apostles then said there uh, in, in uh, verse 2, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Man, you can just picture the 12 apostles in front of this big, in front of this big crowd. We got a great problem, folks. Uh, man, our church has been exploding here in, in Jerusalem. It's become a mega church and a giga church in about a week. Uh, very, very big. And there is no possible way now that, that we apostles can both preach and care for all of these widows. And we cannot stop preaching. We cannot, we will not stop preaching and care for all these widows. But listen, do you think that might have been a temptation for the apostles? To stop some of their preaching? To to care for the widows? Can you just hear the devil whispering in their ears? What's the deal? You apostles too good to care for widows? You not willing to care for widows? Jesus washed your feet. And you can't feed one hungry widow. Shame on you. You can hear it, can't you? I guarantee it was there. But listen, this wasn't a matter here of the apostles being too good to serve these widows. Not a matter of their willingness to serve them. This was a matter of calling. These 12 men had been called by God to preach Christ. to, To use their words to tell everyone they could in Jerusalem and outside of Jerusalem about Jesus, what he said and what he had, di- had done. And man, these apostles, they, they, they knew that they could let nothing, come hell or high water, distract them from their calling. And listen, there, there is a principle there for us today. You know, God, God calls every Christian today to ministry. He, he calls all of us to serve the people around us in this life in, in different ways. And, and God calls every Christian to minister in both word and, and deed. Uh, every Christian, both a, 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 a ministry of the mouth and also of the hand. But, but here's the thing. God has gifted us very uniquely. And, and God calls us to focus a bit more on either mouth or, or hand. You, you might be gifted. You might be called to do more word-focused ministry. Preaching or, or teaching or, or counseling or evangelism. Praise God if you're gifted in that way. Or you might be gifted 
called to do more with, with your hands. A, a, a deed-focused ministry. Caring for widows or, or feeding the poor or fixing someone's home or, or, their, or their, their car or helping them move or playing an instrument or using your mind with, with the church's finances. Whatever it is. But listen, it is important to know your gifting. Your calling, what God wants you to focus on. And man, once you know your place in the body of Christ, stick to it. Stick to it. And, and do not let Satan shame you out of it. Well, what's the deal? You just preach and teach? Too good to serve tables? Or you just serve tables? You can't preach or teach? Shame on you. The accuser trying to bait you away from your God-given calling. My calling as a pastor is primarily a minister of a ministry of the word. It's preaching, it's teaching, it's it's counseling, it's evangelizing. Evangelizing here in the pulpit with my neighbors, if and when I can. Doesn't mean I shouldn't help someone move at times. Doesn't mean I shouldn't help feed the poor, help with setup in here on Sunday morning. I do those things, but I do know one thing for sure. Satan will do anything to distract me with lots of really good tasks in order to keep me away from my one primary God-given calling, which is a ministry of the Word. And I have felt the distractions. And you have to be ruthless to stick to what God has called you and gifted you to do. These apostles, they knew their calling. They were called to preach and to pray. (laughs) They say in verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. It wasn't just preaching. Preaching, teaching, and, and prayer. And that's really what a pastor or elder today is called to do. Devote myself not just to the ministry of the Word, but also to prayer. And these apostles, they won't let anything distract them from their God-given calling, not even the care of these needy widows, which is a really good task. But they cannot give up praying and preaching in order to serve tables. So the apostles propose a way out of this thing to care for the widows. Why don't you, church, select seven men from among you? This was the original Magnificent Seven, (laughs) if you've seen the movie, these guys here. Men of good reputation, the the apostles say. Men full of the Spirit and and of wisdom, or, or godly men directed by the Spirit of God and wise enough to handle a situation like this in this big church. And the apostles say, we'll appoint them to the task. So the the church agrees. Good plan. And verse 5 says that they then selected seven men. We won't read through them again, but if you look at those names carefully, you will recognize something about them. They are all Greek names. So very wisely here, the church probably selected these seven men from the Hellenist group of Christians who would know these Hellenist widows and be able to care for them very, very well. A very wise decision by the apostles and this local church. And man, this church now has essentially created a mercy ministry. Uh, Some Christians in the church who've been tapped to, to, to oversee the church's care for the needy. 
is a ministry of, of deeds. So the apostles can focus on that ministry of words. And the church moves forward now in both word and deed, just like in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You think about these seven men. They were probably not official deacons in the biblical sense. Uh, That office of deacon will not be established until a little bit later in, in the Bible. And the Bible's qualifications for an official deacon they don't mention teaching. The Bible says that an elder, a pastor, has to be able to teach. But a deacon doesn't have to be able to teach, just needs to be an exemplary servant within the church. But these men here, and one of the reasons commentators don't think they were official deacons, is because some of these men, at least, were also teachers and preachers. They were not just exemplary servants. It seems like the church has thought, well, we need somebody to run the mercy ministry, but we also need some people to help the apostles preach and teach. And you see these seven men now, at least a couple of them, preaching and teaching. One of these men, Philip, he'll show up in Acts chapter 8 in Samaria, working signs and wonders and preaching. And Stephen, another of these men, will show up in the very next passage here, also working signs and wonders, and he'll preach in Acts 7, which will get him killed. So these were probably not official deacons, but this right here probably was the precursor to that office in the Bible. The early church recognizing here this need for some in the body to focus more on the ministry of the word and for others to focus more on the ministry of deeds. And we eventually end up with this office of deacons. We have five deacons in our church now. Very thankful for them. We'll most likely appoint more deacons in the near future. And our deacons, man, have helped us a ton. Uh, As elders, we have been passing more and more duties to our deacons, more ministry of the hand type of duties, which has freed us up to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. So thankful for the deacons we have here. If you aspire to be a deacon, you can let me know or one of the other um, elders in our church know. We would... We would love to know that. One thing our deacons do now is our deacons uh, oversee our church's helping hands ministry. We have a helping hands fund so we can help the needy in our own church or or outside, our our neighbors in the community. Uh, It's part of the mercy ministry of our church and our, our deacons are now running that helping hands ministry. Kind of a divvying up of responsibilities like we see here in Acts chapter 6. So, this local church, man, has now divvied up these responsibilities to make sure these widows are no longer neglected. And you look at what Luke says now at the beginning of verse 5. He says, and what the apostles, they said, this plan to divvy up duties, it pleased the whole gathering. It pleased both Hebrews and Hellenists, and they do it. And a subtle division in this church, an ethnic tension, ultimately created, I think, by Satan, has now been healed. The unity has been restored in this church. So that's the lack of unity, number one. That's the restoration of unity. And finally, quickly, 
The final thing of the power of unity. Man, as soon as this church makes these changes, look what Luke says in verse 7. And the Word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests now became obedient to the faith. (laughs) The Word of God continued to increase now. Continued to spread. Primarily, I'm sure, because these apostles had now been freed up to, to, to preach the Word. They had time. To, to pray and, and to preach and to teach and evangelize. And now they got Stephen and Philip also to help them preach the Word. And the church grew. The, the number of disciples, Luke says, now multiplied greatly. And it's amazing when you think about it. Because so many churches today, in an effort to grow, these church growth campaigns, so many churches... In an effort to grow, they're moving away from the preaching of the Word. Cut down on the preaching. Or just dumb down the preaching. Sermonettes for Christianettes. (laughs) It's not preaching that is important. It's programs. More programs. And pastors suddenly become little program directors. No longer preaching. Or praying. There was a survey a little while back in Christianity Today, and they found that the average pastor in America now prays three minutes a day. The average pastor prays three minutes a day. And that is tragic. Uh, Some of those pastors probably don't really believe in the power of prayer. It's more important for them to just get out and start doing things. Others of those pastors, they probably do not have time to pray. They're just swamped with so many other things, too many programs to run in an effort to grow the church. And you could grow a church of 20,000 people through just programs. But if there's no preaching in that church, please hear me on this, many of them will not be Christians. They just will not be. God works through the proclamation of His Word. It doesn't always grow a huge church. Do you know Noah was a preacher of righteousness and how many people were in his church when he finally got in the ark? Eight. Jesus was a preacher of righteousness and he sent more people away than actually followed him. Preaching doesn't necessarily grow big churches, but it does grow Christians. This church here, man, their growth strategy, the apostles devoted themselves to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Then the entire church agreed that was a priority for, for, for them and for their church. And this church now just blew up in size. Even Luke says, a great many of the priests now becoming obedient to the faith. A great many of the Jewish priests are now hearing about Christ through the preaching of the apostles. And they're following Christ now in faith. And that is a mind-blowing statement. Don't rush over that. Why? 
Because these Jewish priests, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, this was the group that has been the most vehemently opposed to Christ. This was the group of people that instigated to crucify Christ. But Jesus now working through these apostles, working through their preaching of God's word, Jesus now reaches out to this hostile crowd. He draws many of these priests into his kingdom, which is just a great expression of Jesus' love for hostile people. But man, this is also just a sign of the power of preaching and the power of God's word. Even the Jewish priests are coming into the kingdom. But do you know what? This right here, it's not just a sign of the power of God's word. Do you know what it's also a sign of? It's a sign of the power of unity. They have just healed the division in this local church. They are now unified once again. And a unified body of Christians is a powerful body of Christians. And as soon as they unify, the word increases and disciples are made. This passage is about the power of unity. These Jewish priests, you know what they saw when they looked in at this church? Do you know what they saw? Well, they saw Hebrews and they saw Hellenists. Not separated like they were in the rest of the, the, the population in Israel. But they saw them connected. One in Christ. Neither Jew nor Greek, neither Hebrew nor Hellenist. They were one. This was unity. And these Jewish priests, I think many of them were probably won over by the unity as they were won over by the proclamation of the Word of God. This passage is about the power of unity. So let me ask you, where's the division in this body? Where is it? Because Satan loves to sow seeds of division. He loves to do that. So, so where is it in this body? Where, where are the, the, the seeds of, of division? Here in this body, maybe between one person and another person, or, 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 or within a life group, or, or maybe one segment of the population here against another segment of the population, one age group against an, another age group, maybe it's one ethnicity against another ethni- ethnicity. Or where, if you have a Christian family, where's the seeds of divisions in your family? Because he loves to divide. And you know one of the questions you can ask? Where's the murmuring? Where's the murmuring right now? Where is it? It's, it's here. Where is it? Don't think for a second that's just you. Holy Spirit loves to, to weaken churches by sowing these seeds of division. May God help us to come together. Man, if that's you or your group or something, you get together with those other Christians in this body and, man, work it out. Take it to the cross and, and you forgive one another. You, you let the Lord open your hearts up to one another. You let that unity be restored. Why? Because a house divided cannot stand. But a house unified can. May God help us to fight for unity neither Jew nor Greek, but all one in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you. Bless you. Bless you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your word. We ask for your help, Lord. It does not come naturally for us as, as, as fallen human beings. It does, come, does not come naturally for us to reach across barriers when, when we are, 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 are in a sort of disunity with another ethnicity or, or another um, uh, uh, stage of life or uh, another class of people. It's just so hard for us, Lord. I just ask, Father, by your Spirit, that you would help us, stir us up,
to strive for unity. The, the, the murmurings that, that we're so prone to, and a lot of times not, not face-to-face, but it's in the back corner. It's, it's on social media in some way, murmuring against the other people in our church. Lord God, I pray you bring conviction right now by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Father, you would bring us together as a local church, and you'd help us to be aware of these schemes of the enemy to divide your people. Help us to fight for unity, Lord God, and we believe there will be power in this body. We thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen.